millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Just before we start, I'm not proud of the sound in this episode, but I couldn't get it any better. Thanks for listening anyway, and all will be well next time. I promise. Welcome to Censored, the podcast that searches literature for filth and filth for literary merit. It depends on the book, really. I'm Aoife Vritnach, and I've set myself the challenge to read dirty books from the Irish band list. As I scan lists of hundreds of censored publications, it feels as if nothing got past the beady-eyed, filthy-minded censors. But I know that's not true, so I thought I'd take a look at the books that got through the net. I've chosen Flann O'Brien because he was one of the few Irish authors publishing in the mid-20th century who was never censored. We know that the censorship regime kept a particularly close watch over Irish-born authors, so I'm very nosy about anyone who escaped. It's even odder that a modernist like O'Brien wasn't banned, because the censors were quite suspicious of innovative literary forms. Flann O'Brien was just one pen name used by Brian O'Nolan, who also wrote prolifically as Miles Nagopoline. The book for this episode, At Swim Two Birds from 1939, was his first published novel. It's not the sort of book I can easily summarise. The narrative blends magical, fabulous elements with realism. It's not really about the plot, but the experience. It has been described as the love child of Stern's Tristram Shandy and Joyce's Portrait of an Artist. As a fan of Tristram Shandy, I should love this book, but I have failed to read it many times. With a definite reason to read it this time, I managed. But Tristram Shandy will always have my heart. When It Swim Two Birds was first published, it bombed, surviving because some influential artists championed it. Dylan Thomas claimed... This is just the book to give your sister, if she's a loud, dirty, boozy girl. It sounds very inappropriate, so why on earth wasn't it banned? To help me answer this question, I'm joined by Kasia Schmigero, Associate Professor at Jan Kochanowski University of Kierca in Poland. She has lots of research interests, from narratives of mental illness to Star Wars. But I'm talking to her because of her work on Flann O'Brien, Mervyn Wall and Emer Duffy, all mid-century Irish writers who experimented with the form of the novel but didn't get blacklisted. Hi, Kasia. Hello, hello. 
Thank you for joining me. Looking forward to our conversation and I'm disappointed you did not love the book as much as I think it needs to be loved. But it is uh, an acquired taste. Uh, I think it's not a coincidence that O'Brien's best friend called this novel that it's not a plot but a conspiracy. So unless you are into conspiracy and these multi-leveled self-reflective narratives, uh, you're not going to get the book. And probably that's why the censors were not able to read it either. As a fan of of Shandy, I did think I would like it because that is a book most people hate. I love Tristram Shandy. I love Tristram Shandy, one of my favorite novels ever. Yes, I mean, I think it's wonderful. So it, it surprised me that I couldn't get on with this better. But then, I don't know, that's just one of those things. Maybe I should try it again. Or maybe you should simply accept that you don't like it, full stop, right? You know, you can't love all the books. Normally, I pick a drink to match the book. And I suppose it really has to be a pint for this book, doesn't it? Obviously, the pint of plain is your only man, right? As as the poem quoted many times in the novel uh, says that it has to be a pint of plain, probably Guinness, but I'm not 100% sure. Uh, maybe not Guinness because the narrator's uncle is uh, employed by Guinness and most of the time he boycotts the uncle. I'm not sure if the boycott of the uncle goes as far as boycotting the drink, but it might. Yes, there's a lot of boozing. There's a lot of attending the pub and there is, in a rare note of honesty, a lot of vomiting afterwards as well. Yes, uh, uh, my clothes were offensive to the two senses, smell and and sight, right? As as the narrator says after after waking up the next morning. Yes, it is quite vivid on on the puking, and we should note that O'Nolan was himself an alcoholic, and so it is tinged with tragedy because the alcohol ended up destroying him. We have to say that the uh, the narrator, who is a student, starts his adventure with drinking uh, when he starts writing the novel. So he is in his 20s. So it's relatively late and he has little experience. So I think we should forgive him for for not being able to keep the drink in. He's young. He will learn. It is one of the more vivid images in the book I found. Like I will always remember the sort of both his descriptions of the taste of puke and, you know. It is tiny bit adolescent, I would say, the book very lad, underage lad thing, I would say. Yes, yeah, just starting off on the, oh, I can go to pubs and have have a drink. So when I read this, I was trying to do my censorship head. You know, it's a very focused kind of way of thinking about a book. And I did struggle to find anything explicit. But I will say that the bit that jumped out for me was, it was on page 42, and I'm going to read it out now. A Tuesday evening at the Red Swan, example of. In the darkness of the early night, Trellis arose from his bed and drew a trousers over the bulging exuberance of his nightclothes, swaying on white, worthless legs. So when I read that, I thought, hmm, bulging exuberance. Okay, maybe he's got a really long shirt on, or is this a way of trying to say that he's got a hard on? And I, uh, okay, that's kind of, you could read it both ways. And then it, it talks about him going downstairs to the basement and he enters the basement, which is festooned with his washing and there's a woman in front of the fire. And then this is the next part. The figure of Teresa was visible at the stove, her thick ties presented to the penetration of the fire. 
She was a stout girl of high colour, attired in grey, and divided at the centre by the terminal ridge of a corset of inferior design. So I thought, "Mm, that's a bit... He's kind of elusive and coy. I wouldn't say it's obviously rude, but you could certainly think that that's a coy way of talking about penetration and hard-ons and things like that. I agree. I mean, I think with O'Brien, you always have a lot of puns. This is puns, innuendos, hints. Nothing is really explicit. I remember in The Third Policeman, there is this very, very suggestive fragment, his later novel, in which the uh, narrator rides a bicycle. The bicycle is yielding to him. He's pressing harder. And you have this very, very, very passionate description of the ride. Obviously, you know, a ride is a ride and a bicycle is uh, synonymous for, let's say, a loose woman. But you can't really ban a book because a guy rides a bicycle in a passionate manner. So the same here, if you are an intelligent reader, you will notice all the puns, these double meanings. But if you're not a very imaginative reader, you will probably get distracted by how elaborate the language is, that it's not a very straightforward, tiltillating expression, right? He approached the the, uh, washerwoman um, with, let's say, amorous intention. Yes, it is. It is quite an ornate and elaborate text. And it it, it kind of plays with things where you're like one paragraph looks one way and then the next paragraph switches into something else. So it, yeah, it is, I think, hard to, as you say, focus or concentrate in a way that means that you would notice everything in the book. And frequently the really naughty bits are the bits that are missing the bits that your mind reads onto the text, but they are not really in the text. Like, for instance, when the narrator looks at all the clubs and societies available at his university, he says that there was a society for Irish letters, a society for English letters, and a society for French advancement of French literature and language. And obviously you're waiting for French letters, right? Because it's it's like parallel structure. And obviously you can't write French letters. So you see advanced of French language, which stylistically doesn't fit. You know what should be there. You know why it's not there. uh, And you laugh. But again, you can't uh, send a book to the censorship board saying, whenever I read this fragment, I think of condoms because it doesn't tell anything about the author. It tells everything about, you know, how dirty your mind is, that you're reading something uh, that is not in this innocent uh, you know, society for the advan- advancement of French literature. It's a very respectable society. Mm-hmm. So it's not even, I would say, it's not even implicit in smut in the way sometimes it's very coy and it's very oblique. Yes. And what would be your most favourite, silliest, punning, oblique, dirty bit, do you think? There are so many of them that it's really difficult to... To say, I, for instance, love the catalogue of Trellis's vices when uh, his son is preparing the nasty description of his father to punish him. He decides it would be easier to give them as a catalogue, a kind of index, because it saves space. Holy purity, he despised. Boys, corner, consorted with. Conversations, licentious, conducted by telephone with unnamed female servants of the Department of Post and Telegraphs. Dirtiness, 
all manner of spirit, spiritual, mental, and physical glorified in eclecticism, practiced amorous. What's practicing amorous eclecticism? You know, it tells you about all sorts of possible perversions, uh, but it doesn't name any. So again, your your imagination is at work. Yeah. I do think that maybe the censors in 1939 weren't as bad as they became later in the early 50s. I get the feeling a book like this would have had a harder time in the 50s, maybe, because they were so severe. Probably, but most of the copies were bombed. So the book didn't really survive. And when, when it was republished in the 60s, uh, the 60s were much more relaxed and you had much more explicit descriptions of sexual activity. And also, it's not really that the censors read the book as such, but the readers would need to send the book to the censors with different fragments underlined. And I don't think an average Irish reader would, A, get hold of the book, B, be able to uh, read the book and really get aroused by these descriptions, because these are not descriptions of sexual activity as such, you know, uh, amorous eclecticism he practiced. Its failure initially and its lack of copies on the market really could have done it a favour in saving it. Probably. How fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think, you know, the, the world in, the 19, in 1939 had more serious problems to deal with than le uh, one not even that smutty book. I mean, obviously, there were books banned for definitely less than that. Like if you think of Kate O'Brien's no relation, uh, Land of Spices, I mean, the book was banned for like half a sentence that the main character found her father and uh, uh, his friend in the embrace of love. I mean, embrace of love is a beautiful phrase for, you know, a homosexual act. But the very idea that it, and, uh, that it is mentioned made somebody ban the book. But was it really banned for that sentence? Or maybe it was banned for other reasons. I think it was banned because it was very uh, anti-nationalist. Uh, anti uh, it was banned because it presented a much more universal vision of Catholicism, that it was not xenophobic at all, that it was very pro-feminist also. So I think it was banned for the things you couldn't really ban a book for. So theoretically, officially, it was banned because of this a sentence here uh, you can't really say that this book is offensive to any it's not offensive to religion it's not offensive to the nation it's not offensive to any patriotic feelings it's more, more like a literary joke which is so sophisticated uh, so digressive that I wouldn't say I wouldn't say anybody would really pick on that he had been controversial as a newspaper columnist and he was sued for libel and people did know that they were the same person as well. So it wasn't that he was an anonymous nobody that no one would have known about. And I think that's what makes it interesting that, that he escaped censure in that way. And the other book, I don't know if you've read it. Have you read the Unbeilbocht? Yeah, of course, The Poor Mouth. Yeah. I've read it in Irish and I just think it is one of the funniest books ever. I literally couldn't breathe at points. I was laughing so hard. I'll never forget it. I've never laughed so hard at a book. And that's 1941. I laugh at Swim to Birds from time to Do time. Do you? 
Yeah, there are there are fragments that uh, you know all these uh, intertextual references or the hints. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. So it's it's like Beckett in that sense, where there are those sorts of puns and in-jokes. Yes, but they are for the Cinderella kind of reader, right? To uh, find the pearls among the ash. I'm not saying there is much ash here, but definitely the pearls are not something that an average reader would notice immediately. Mm. So but he's, for instance, mentioning, sorry to interrupt you, things that were definitely great taboos in Ireland in the 1930s or 40s. He's mentioning abortion. He's mentioning contraception. But he either does it as a quotation from a different text, a 17th or 18th century text in which a lady asks a question whether it's possible to conceive during the night in her sleep without knowing a man and whether it would be legal to get rid of this product of her nightly, let's say, uh, imaginary exploits. And obviously, he's mentioning premarital sex. He's mentioning abortion. And I think he's also hinting at Virgin Mary. I mean, I don't know a man, but I found myself pregnant. What am I to do with it, right? So the girl wants to abort Jesus. And uh, But again, you need to add all these layers of meaning yourself. They are not in the book. And he is mentioning all these taboo subjects, but in such a humorous way or quoting authentic 17th or 18th century, you know, bizarre almanacs or medical treaties. Uh, you know, you would have to ban the medical treaty from the 17th century, not Flann O'Brien. Because- well, I suppose the difference with Beckett is that Beckett is 
so OTT and is being deliberately provocative. And he ramps it up and keeps going and keeps going. So by the end of a Beckett book, even if you don't know what he's talking about, you know it was rude, but it doesn't feel like that with O'Brien. Yeah, you know it was funny and uh, with, with O'Brien. You, you knew he was pulling your leg and he was slightly flirtatious, but being slightly flirtatious is not the same as, uh, you know, presenting all your... Uh, all your private parts to the audience, right? He is much more um, conspicuous in his um, smuttiness. Yes, I mean, Beckett is absolutely showing off the whole time. O'Brien isn't. He is he's a modest guy. Clever, witty, but modest. Yes. But now that I have someone in front of me who's living in Poland, I really have to ask you about freedom of expression there because we read in the newspapers about the efforts of the Law and Justice Party to punish the media who are critical of its actions. And we hear a lot about human rights, about uh, abortion rights and gay rights. And I'm just wondering, what is the battleground for artistic expression in Poland right now? Is it books or is it other forms? I would say that now it's mainly visual arts, or theater, not books as such. You can probably publish anything you want to. And if you publish it with a more liberal publisher, nobody would ban it. Uh, So it would be uh, legally sold. However, we have a rewriting of history and rewriting of various textbooks. So old textbooks would be withdrawn from the curriculum. And the new textbooks, history or biology, would not have the controversial topics mentioned like reproduction, contraception, or I'm not talking about political stuff, uh, but obviously political stuff and the role of Lech Wałęsa as a solidarity leader. He would now be presented as undercover Soviet agent and the true heroes are the former president Lech Kaczyński and his twin brother, who is now the unofficial leader of Poland. It's not censorship. It's just a kind of, you know, we have a new school program, so we have to write new textbooks and we are conveniently avoiding some things. Recently, the biggest scandals we had would we uh, would concern blasphemy laws. Like most countries, we have blasphemy laws, so it is against the law, it's a criminal act to offend somebody's religious feelings. Obviously, this is a very vague uh, term, because what are religious feelings? Obviously, uh, the Jews can say that Christians offend their religious feelings as a group, right? Uh, However, any kind of criticism of let's say, John Paul II, or any kind of criticism of the church, even if it's absolutely justified, like all the pedophile cases that are, are springing up in Poland, the way they uh, they appeared everywhere, you know, in Ireland, in the United States, in Australia. Uh, they are hushed-hushed, and they are saying that this is an attack on the church. Uh, when the, I think it was a year ago, when Polish church was very loudly anti-LGBT, uh, one of the activists played with the, the icon of uh, Virgin Mary. We have uh, one very important picture, uh, which is in fact an icon, uh, in which Virgin Mary is holding a baby. 
and she replaced the official halo of Virgin Mary with a rainbow. And obviously, the rainbow now is not just a rainbow. The rainbow is only LGBT. So uh, she had her house searched by the police, you know, like five o'clock in the morning uh, for offending people's religious feelings. Wow. So this kind of artistic expression, especially if you are playing with symbols and emblems, if you're using these symbols and emblems for a more modern agenda, if you're taking an old symbol, like, for instance, when there was an uprising in Warsaw during the Second World War, the symbol was the letter uh, the fighting Poland, and the fighting Poland in Polish would have the double W. And when women were fighting for their rights, they replaced the W with breasts. So you're using a cherished symbol and you're saying these people 100 years ago, they were fighting to get rid of the Nazis. Now we are fighting for women's rights. And these symbols would be protected by the law and you can't play with them in any way. Uh, So uh, you can't reuse them. You can't uh, put them in modern uh, art forms. Wow. Okay. Uh, which obviously most, you know, any art critic or art historian would tell you this is completely idiotic because it kills the dialogue with older art forms. It kills artistic expression and any kind of progress is the result of dialogue with what used to be. And it shows that these symbols are still valid for people. They are not just historical symbols, but modern people still use them. Uh, as relevant to what they're fighting for now. So uh, I would say that would be mainly mainly visual arts because I think that the campaigns and all the activism now is either the internet memes or the streets. So it wouldn't be books, it wouldn't be films, it wouldn't be uh, even songs. It would be very immediate visual images that people recognize and it just takes moment to recognize the symbol or to recognize the picture. And in order to read a book, this is a much more solitary activity. So it's much more about the visual shorthand that's used in public. Yes. How interesting. And using blasphemy law rather than censorship law a lot of the time. Yes, this is blasphemy law. And you don't really need to define your religious feelings how they were offended. Interesting that people can complain about something because of this loose definition. I mean, that is like the Irish censorship laws, which was about indecency, and no one ever said what indecency was. That was the complaint. So it's the same. You use this broad, big word. You don't have to define it, and you can shove anything underneath it. Anything you want there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that. I mean, that was fascinating. I did not know that it was so much about the use of symbols and memes and posters. And I suppose because when you work on censorship of books, you kind of think of it as much more formal and official. But of course, it can be targeted towards anything in any different ways to suppress artistic expression. So it's it's not like that, you know, you, you can probably publish a very smutty book. And a lot of, curiously enough, a lot of smutty books Uh, have been published recently in Poland and turned into films and they are, uh, you know, you can see them in, you know, every cinema, obviously not now because uh, of the pandemics, but 
uh, because of the unfortunate popularity of Fifty Shades of Grey, we had a, a Polish, one of my students, I will quote him here, said that this book and its adaptation should not be seen as an artistic work, but as crime against humanity. <laughs> so uh, I, I really, uh, you know, uh, Michał, I'm mentioning your work here because I think it deserves public mentioning. So as a kind of a, you know, aftermath of the popularity of Fifty Shades of Grey, we had this Polish celebrity, I don't even want to call her a writer, who wrote a novel entitled 565 Days or something like that, which is about... Uh, an affair of a Polish woman with some Italian gangster who is this, uh, you know, macho Latin lover and uh, a lot of uh, smutty things. I haven't, haven't read any of these books, but uh, I read about I'm, I'm not I'm not able to I'm not able to this. It's usually horribly bad literature. Right. I have nothing against smut when it's well written. And, you know, this book was a bestseller. This book was filmed. Uh, many women wanted to see it and nobody said it offends decorum or public morality or whatever. It's absolutely legal because it doesn't openly criticize the church or it doesn't openly question the current government. It's seen as, you know, some kind of innocent entertainment. I mean, you can buy hardcore pornography in any, any kiosk you want to. Yeah, the battlefield shifts. Sometimes it's sex and sometimes it's other things. It's quite fascinating how how public morality can just coalesce around one thing, even though you would think in, and in the past it used to be around other things. It can just move. It's very interesting. I will just say one more thing. The previous government, the much more liberal government, promised Poland that we will become Second Ireland. And what they meant was that Ireland, that used to be a relatively poor, rural, underdeveloped country in the 60s and 70s, mushroomed as a result of joining European Union, uh, the common market, changed into this Celtic tiger and so on. Obviously, I realize it was not as nice as it was officially presented. But for many Polish people, you know, we will become the second Ireland, a traditional Catholic country, but a modern state, prosperous state, wealthy state. Ironically, we do have a second Ireland, but the Ireland from the you know, 1950s uh, and Magdalene Laundries, in which bishops wants, really want the list of pregnant students. Why do they collect the list of pregnant students? I mean, like secondary school students. What do they need this information for? Many of these girls are you know, over 18, so they can be pregnant if they, if they want to. So we do have a second Ireland, but not from, you know, if you wish for something, be really very, very precise because your wish may come true. We have a second Ireland. The, the scary, repressive Ireland, not the modern, outgoing, trendy Ireland. Kasia, that was absolutely fascinating. The parallels between different types of censorship regimes and then what is permissible and then how you can get around it and how O'Brien wheedled in things i just thought that was great thank you so much thank you very much it was lovely talking to you yeah and that's it for this bonus episode i may not love o'brien's at swim two birds like i do his on bell bocht but i do get it when i tried to read out the smutty part about the servant girl in front of the fire i stumbled again and again over thick thighs if you speak with an irish accent 
This arrangement of sounds is cruel. After a few goes, I was skitting laughing at how impossible and ridiculous it was, and that seems to be Flan O'Brien all over. Next episode features another not-banned book. John Broderick's The Fugitives mysteriously escaped the censors. I discussed his earlier book, The Pilgrimage, with Dr. Declan Kavanagh in Series 2, Episode 8, if you want a general overview of the man before you listen to this one. I liked The Pilgrimage, but I loved The Fugitives. It's dreary, rain-soaked, full-on Irish noir. And the central relationship is between two IRA men. How did it get through when homophobia was behind so many bans? Broderick also wrote what I think is the most scandalous sex scene in modern Irish literature. You really won't believe it. In the meantime, if you can't get the ride this lockdown, you can at least read about riding in a banned book. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.